Welcome to the Upper Perkiomen Community Church Podcast. Join us on Sundays at 258 Main Street, East Greenville, Pennsylvania. Refreshments at 9 a.m. Worship at 9.30 a.m. Or visit us online at upcconline.org. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy our teaching time with our special guest speaker. always get to this point and I'd, I'd rather keep singing. <laughs> I have an idea though that could save us some money on that uh, that next phase. If we just keep doing acoustic, I'd, I'd be okay with that. Uh, no offense to everybody else, but uh, anyways, not a lot of time. Uh, we have a lot going on today. I actually wanted to read you a story. It's called Who is My Neighbor by uh, Amy Jill Levine and Sandy Eisenberg Sasso. I actually got permission from the author to do that, so I didn't know how that worked, and I wanted to do it right, but we don't have time. But if, you're, if you want to uh, you know, share a challenge similar to what we're going to talk about here in a couple minutes with your kids, I would recommend this book, Who is My Neighbor? And I have two more. You guys know this is what I like to do. Uh, so there's another one, God Made Me and You, Celebrating God's Design for Ethnic Diversity by Shai Lin. Uh, some of you have heard that name. And um, I have another one, God's Very Good Idea, A True Story About God's Delightfully Different Family by Trillia Newbell. These are great reads, uh, good reminders just to us as parents, uh, but also it's a really, they're really good tools to get your kids uh, understanding the, the unity that can be found in the diversity of God's creation. But we're not going to do the story. We'll just skip to the story that I want to talk about, and that's in Luke 10. And as you can see, it's about the good neighbor. It's not about State Farm. Uh, it's a different neighbor. Um, so uh, let's go ahead and turn to Luke Luke 10. And just to start, we can, we can jump off with a question, very simple question, right? Who is your neighbor? So who is your neighbor? Don't use any names, just describe it. That's a legit question. Who is your neighbor? <laughs> Daughter-in-law's parents, okay? Our pastor. Oh, for you guys, yes, that's true. That is true. Anyone else? Who is your neighbor? Tom Flood. Don't use names. Coworkers, okay? Okay, anyone you have an opportunity to interact with. That's, that's a lot of people. <laughs> well, let's take a look at how someone answered this question about 2,000 years ago, uh, and it's in Luke 10. Now, in Luke 10, the context, we go back to verses 1 through 16, we see Jesus has, has just sent out these 72 followers 
Okay, so people that are following and interacting with Jesus and the disciples. And he sends out 72 of them. And he sends them ahead of what their plans are to proclaim God's kingdom. And in some situations, in some scenarios, they were able to heal people of some of their sicknesses. And as you're reading through the passage, you come to verse 16, or verse 17, and we see that the 72 returned to Jesus and the disciples, and and they were astonished. And in verse 17, they say, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And then in verse 20, Jesus' response, he says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So even though you know, as hum- humanly speaking, they, they see these miracles and they come back and they even give credit to Jesus, you know, in your name. And Jesus kind of reorients them and says, okay, that's, that is cool, but think about this. <laughs> you know, your names are written in heaven. And then Jesus prays and he prays to God and he says something very interesting. And there's a little bit of speculation here on my part, but I, th- I think his prayer may have been witnessed by this next person we're going to talk about, um, and, and it may have spurred on this conversation that we're going to dive into. And Jesus says, you have hidden, and he's talking to God, so he says, you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Again, hidden these things from the wise and understanding. Another way that that could be translated is wise and intelligent. And then Jesus turns to the disciples, and in a a very private conversation, verses uh, uh, 23 to 24, he says, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. I mean, think about it. They are witnessing the coming and now here, Messiah, something that for thousands of years has been prophesied about. And they are witnessing this right in front of them. And all these 72 and the healing they were able to do and the proclaiming of God's kingdom, all of these things are going on. Which brings us to verse 25, the start of our passage. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. And I wonder, you know, I just wonder if this lawyer overheard Christ's prayer when he says, you know, praise you, God, who, who has hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent. And this guy probably like, wait, he's talking about me because I'm certainly wise and intelligent. Uh, so if he thinks this is hidden from me, I'm going to test him. So in, in Luke 10, 25 to 29, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly, Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So let's kind of pick this part a little bit. When it it says lawyer there, I think a lot of us think of, you know, really high-priced people who know a lot about the law that you don't, and you need to pay them so that they can help you in a certain situation. And for, for this lawyer in this situation, it was very specific to the Jewish law. So when he says, teacher... And he tries to get Jesus 
attention, like that's how someone would have addressed him. And he, being well-versed in the law, asked Jesus this question to test him. It's just, it's a little odd that we find ourselves in this situation, that we're witness to this. So we know he was a lawyer, but the audience may or may not have known that. And he tries to put him to the test. And we have another advantage here because we see the motive of his question. It's not like for a while now he's been having conversations with others or he's been following Christ this whole time and he's thinking, what exactly is he talking about as far as inheriting eternal life? So we see his motive here. And if we're honest, this is probably the most important question in life. Very similar, in my opinion, to, um, you know, what is the meaning of life? And Christ, in an amazing way that only he can do, he turns it around and says, what is written in the law? So that phrase right there, what is written in the law, that would have been common in this lawyer's conversation with other lawyers throughout the day and the weeks. It'd be a very common phrase that he would hear in these debates that he more than likely would have with others. And so Jesus takes this common phrase and he uses it on him. And David Smith, in his, his, uh, his great commentary, his work called The Days of His Flesh, he says, Jesus perceived his crafty intent, and with that amazing resourcefulness which never failed him in sudden emergencies, he declined to commit himself and made his assailant answer his own question thus assuming at the outset the critic's vantage ground. So where does Christ turn to find the answer to the most important question in life? God's word. He says, what does the law say? And in that, he's talking about what does scripture? What does scripture say? And I was telling Rachel earlier, you know, as I'm studying this, I'm thinking like Jesus is just incredible with the way he uses words. You know, it's not just us Bible believers that study Christ and who he was and what he said, a lot of people in leadership that, that don't believe who Jesus was as far as being completely God and completely man, they also study his tactics, the way he used his words and things. And Jesus is just so incredibly patient and graceful. You know, we know the, the lawyer's occupation and his intent, and so did Jesus. He knew all of this because he's Jesus. And he just gracefully and patiently <laughs> lets this guy kind of like walk himself back into a corner. It's just amazing. Now, he uses Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18 to, to answer. And so like every student of the law, he had memorized something that they would call the Shema. And in the Shema, it's a daily prayer that uses Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 along with Leviticus 19.18. And since many, many rabbis would have defined a neighbor as a fellow Jew, he may have even assumed that Christ would give a correction to the way he viewed it. And that may have been what he was trying to test him on. But the neat thing is, what does Jesus say? He goes, you're correct. And probably completely unexpected to this guy who's trying to test him. But he answers, do this and you will live. The problem with that answer is that it's impossible. He's not saying do this today and you've got, you know, eternal life. He's saying do this perfectly and you will have eternal life. But nobody can do that. It's impossible. The purpose of the law 
was always and is always to expose our sinfulness and to point us to the perfect Savior who could fulfill the law. It's at this point, uh, I can just kind of see everyone in this conversation. So uh, he asks the question, Christ says, what do, you, what do you say it is? He gives the answer, you know, through this Shema. And then Christ says, you're correct, go and do this. And I can almost see like everyone that's gathered around kind of turning and, and moving on to, uh, you know, whatever the next thing is they're doing and moving on to their conversation and in this moment, I can, I can almost picture maybe the lawyer's buddy next to him. And the lawyer goes to open his mouth. And I can just, like, if I'm his buddy, I can just feel like, dude, just leave it alone. Move on. You know, <laughs> your plan didn't work. Let, let's, let's go. And, and he opens his mouth. And he says something anyway. And who is my neighbor? And I can just see his buddy like, oh, goodness. Seriously? You couldn't have just left it alone? And so, desiring to justify himself, it tells us in Scripture, so the lawyer knew that he had not fulfilled this command. He, he knew that he couldn't perfectly uphold that command. And so, in, in a way to maybe justify himself and go, on, like, you know, if only I had known who my neighbor was, if this had clearly been explained to me, then I could have figured this out and gained, per, you know, eternal life. He asks, who is my neighbor? And there's a long historic debate amongst the Pharisees, and a general consensus was to place limitations on who their neighbors really were, especially when it came to non-Jewish people. And so this is the background that this guy has when he says, who is my neighbor? And this is where it turns. This is where it gets interesting. And I, I feel like when we, when we look at the text, one of the very first things that... Um, that Christ points out, is that the world is broken. When you look at verse 30, he starts this story. So in 1030, Jesus replied to his, his question, who is my neighbor? And he says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, can anyone remember the, um, the illustration that Bob used when he when he spoke on his parable, what did he have up here with him? A spreader, right? And so I was really jealous, and I'm like, oh, i got to think of something really cool to bring. And, uh, but I just, you know, as I'm reading through the text, I thought, you know, if I had a guy up here who was half dead, half naked, beaten, that would be something you guys would remember, right? But I just felt like it was inappropriate, so I decided not to do that. Um, so, so Jesus, you know, in, in the way that only he can, he, he starts telling this story, and it's a very vivid picture. And so he's trying to get their attention, obviously. But when we look at this, we see, you know, sin is, is real. It is real. And as Bible readers, we understand that mankind is totally depraved. And by that, we mean apart from God acting in some supernatural way, we would be lost and bound for an eternity without him. And many have asked, how could God allow this? Or how can God allow that to happen? Or why do people get sick? Or why does the weather and the atmosphere seem to be deteriorating? All of these things, we question all these things. And the first part of the gospel, or the good news that we know, is that God created the world 
and everything in it. And when he finished, he said, it is good. But the story doesn't end there. And from there, we see that sin enters the world and corrupts everything that God had created. And this is part of it. These robbers, what they did, how they treated this man, it's, just, it's part of sin, being in this world. Just like the answer to all those other questions. Why do people get sick? Why is this allowed? Why does this happen? It's because of sin. This is the world that we live in. So Jerusalem was about 2,500 um, square feet, 2,500 feet above sea level. And Jericho was about 700 feet below sea level. So literally when he says this man went down to Jericho, it, it, was, it was a trek down. And it's not Jericho, the one that had the walls fall down that we know of since we were a kid. This is a different Jericho that it's talking about here. But as we read this and we see this journey, one thing sticks out to me about this man. And it's that we don't know his nationality. Have you ever noticed that? We just kind of assume it may be this person, that person, this type of race. But we don't know. Jesus doesn't tell us. And I think that's intentional. I think it's so that we can... Even now, 2,000 years later, look at this text, and we should be able to picture anybody. And he starts the story with a tragedy to show us that the world is broken. But it doesn't end there, obviously. The next thing we can see from the text is that religion is insufficient. We go to verse 31 and 32. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, there's some debate. So did, did the priest avoid him because they needed to be ceremonial clean to do their rituals and things? And through the arguments, what I, what I feel is the case is when you, when you look at their tradition, traditionally, if there was someone who is in need, like close to death, you are allowed, and actually, you should be compelled to help that person out. So I don't think that's a legit excuse. Now, there are a lot of things that could be, in someone, in our human, human mind, a very good excuse. It may have been um, difficult to tell if he was alive or dead. Um, there's a lot of reasons, even the Levite. But as a Levite, with their history, if anyone should show compassion on this person, it should be a Levite because of everything that they have received. The man's needs were clear. Both of these men likely avoided assisting the injured traveler out of a tremendous risk they would have placed on themselves. So thinking thoughts like, what if the robbers are still near? What if this is a trap? How long would it take me to, help to find proper help for this man? What would it cost financially to provide assistance for him? There's a lot of questions that could have been going through their mind. But these men were the epitome of religion. And if religion could solve these problems, that was a perfect scenario. I thought you get in the quiet. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you see, the law was always intended to show that a relationship with God demands perfection without spot and blameless. Leviticus 11.44 says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. In Matthew 5.48, it 
Jesus is preaching his Sermon on the Mount, he says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that is exactly what the law has always said. This lawyer should have understood this, but he and his colleagues have manipulated and massaged that law until their legalism and self-righteous efforts fit into a nice little box that they call the law. And out of their depraved and wicked hearts grew a belief that they could find some kind of salvation in and of themselves. And it's easy for us to point fingers at them, but in some ways we do the same thing. One slip, one misstep nullifies every perfect effort and step that was taken before it. We cannot save ourselves. So religion is insufficient. And the next thing we see is that our biases are real. So if, if I were to say, okay, maybe this is a good question for Rod Garrett, uh, a priest, a minister, and... Okay, walk into a bar. So a priest, a minister, and a pastor or a rabbi... Uh, you know, walk into a bar. It's a typical joke. So if you started with that phrasing, you would draw a conclusion in your mind. And it's the same way here for them back then. So if one were to say a priest, a Levite, and a, they would think Israelite. That's the very next thing that would come to their mind. So as Jesus is telling the story and he says a priest came by, he passed by the other side. A Levite came by and he passed by the other side. That audience that is sitting there, the next thing they would expect is an Israelite came by. And what does Jesus say? But a Samaritan. And they're like, what? what, what? Like, wait a second. That's not how this joke goes, you know? So they hear a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, we can't dive into the historical relationship there between Samaritans and Jews, but it went back a long time, and it had a lot to do with where they worshipped, who used the right text that was from God, and, and who did they marry, and all of these things. But there was a lot of bitter conflict between these two people. So to be expecting to hear Israelite and then to hear Samaritan, we today just can't really comprehend the significance of that. But we can try, okay? So try. So he says, Samaritan. To the, so to them, you know, if he said a good Samaritan, that would be an oxymoron. So something like, uh, I was trying to think of good ones, and all I could come up with, like, a jumbo shrimp, right? A jumbo shrimp. Or um, deafening silence. Uh, so the, the two things just didn't go together. So a good Samaritan, for them, the listeners, they're like, what? That doesn't make any sense. But his compassion, it led to action. He didn't pray for him and say, you know, be blessed. I hope, I hope you get the help you need. It led him to action. So that's the next thing that we see. Uh, so in verses 34 to 35, true love requires sacrifice. Remember this question goes all the way back to what he had said from the Shema about to love your neighbor as yourself. Who's my neighbor? You know, what does that mean? So in 34 and 35, in Luke 10, it says, He went to him, bound his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. 
Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will when I come back. So it starts off, he went to him. And what did, it, what did it say for the priest and the Levite? They passed by on the other side. So a complete contrast to what we saw with the other two examples. And so he poured on the oil and the wine, and basically that was just a typical medicinal way that they would help in the healing back then. And we also see, though, that so he gave of some of his possessions, but also he gave up his own comfort, and he let this injured man ride. I almost said on his vehicle. <laughs> That's inaccurate. Uh, <laughs> let him ride on his animal, okay? Also, we see a little bit later, it cost him financially, so he gave two denarii. And we know from other passages that a denarii or denarius, was the equivalent of a generous day's wage. So a day's wage. So he gave two of them to this innkeeper. And with that, you could purchase, uh, back then you could purchase like a sheep. You could have enough, uh, you could buy enough bread to make 25 lunches. That's a lot of lunches. Uh, But the Samaritan assumed that two would be enough, but he didn't stop there, did he? He also said, I'll repay whatever else you use when I am gone. So not only did he have compassion, he acted on the compassion. He came to the man. He gave of his own comfort. He gave of his own finances. All of these things. He was a phenomenal steward of all the things that he had. So it even cost him time. So it's almost like during the story we see that he had places to go, people to see, things to do. And in fact, this route from Jerusalem to Jericho was a very popular trade route. So a lot of people, you know, would make things and bring them and sell them elsewhere. And maybe that's why the robbers were there, because they would typically steal from the people who had made things. But he had things to do, and he said, I got to get going, but take care of this guy. When I come back, I will repay what is owed. So he gave sacrificially of himself, of his possessions, of his time, Just a great example for us. So as we come to the end of this, I want to ask again, who is your neighbor? You know what's interesting is Jesus never really answered, who is my neighbor? He doesn't say, this man that was injured, this man who had a need, is your neighbor. But what does he do? He turns and asks a question back to the guy. Which of these three do you think proved be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So who is your neighbor? I think the answer is anyone who has a need that you can meet. Anyone who has a need that you can meet. And isn't Jesus just, he is the perfect neighbor. The greatest need that you or I or our kids or our parents or coworkers or neighbors would ever have is to have their relationship with their creator restored. 
And Jesus meets that need. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. He heals our spiritual wounds. He mends our broken hearts. He carries us through our trials. He will usher us to our eternal home with God the Father. He meets all of our needs. There are no limits to God's neighborhood. Scripture tells us that God's love stretches beyond our comprehension. If you have placed your faith in Christ and asked him to be Lord of your life and been united with Christ for all eternity, you now have an obligation to share this with others. Our responsibility is to share the gospel with others because everyone is in need of that. We are called to be in the world but not of it. This world isn't our home, and as the song says, we are just passing through. We have something else to look forward to, but while we are still here, until God has taken us to be with him forever, we have a responsibility to love our neighbors. We have members that work in so many industries. We have so many differing backgrounds and life experiences And we have a segment of our family that is about to go out into another community and proclaim Jesus' love to the new neighbors. Imagine the testimony that this 10-year-old little church in East Greenville, Pennsylvania can have in the coming months with all of the glory going to God. This world is broken and religion is not going to fix it. But the gospel of Jesus Christ can redeem it. In spite of our inefficiencies and all our biases, we are to truly love God and love others regardless of the sacrifices it will require of us. With our church plant in mind, with our families in mind, with our jobs and all our relationships in mind, I challenge you, Christ, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, it can be so confusing today with so much societal pressure to love others in an unbiblical way. We're told that true love accepts everyone for who they are, but only you can do that. We are called to love you and love others by proclaiming Christ as Savior, but not only Savior, the answer to life's most important question, what can we do to receive eternal life? By meeting other people's needs when we have the means to do so, and by doing it while proclaiming Christ crucified, we bring you glory. Jesus Christ, thank you for making all of this possible. Holy Spirit, lead and direct us. Prompt us to go and do likewise in each new morning. And in Jesus' name, amen.